And welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres, and I am here with Sarah Robertson. How are you doing, Sarah? Hi, Dan. I am doing swell. How are you? I am doing well. Um, who do we have on this episode? Well, I invited two environmental activists from Westfield, Kristen Mello and Marianne Babinski. Kristen is a city councilor and Marianne is a former city councilor who have both been really involved in um, the issue having to do with PFAS contamination around the Westfield Barnes Air Force Base. I've heard a lot about that. You have. But well, I don't know much. Well, it's been going on for over 10 years now. Okay. We've known about the contamination, and the news of the day is that the Department of Defense just agreed to fund a remedial investigation. Mm. So for the first time, they're putting money towards figuring out how to fix all of the aquifers that have been contaminated with these chemicals that are harmful to human health and come from things like firefighting foam or um, waterproof clothing and fake turf grass. Mm-hmm. A lot of things. So welcome to the show, Kristen and Marianne. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And I should say our always disclaimer, although we were both at various points uh, elected as city councilors, neither of us ever speaks for the city of Westfield itself. Are probably here primarily as the founder of Westfield Residents Advocating for Themselves. Um, right, the co-founder and director. Mm-hmm. Marianne was uh, an original founding member as well. And, and I was also with Westville Concerned Citizens when we were fighting against a power plant, gas-fired power plant. Right. So you both have some pretty deep roots in environmental activism in the Westfield area. Could you tell us about how each of you got involved with the PFAS issue around the airport base? Kristen, would you like to start? Sure, Uh, and thank you for having us and for talking about PFAS, especially in Westfield. I found out that there was something in the water because the niece that I raised had some classmates and their parents called me uh, because they knew that my education had been in analytical chemistry and wanted to know, they got this letter from the water department and what are these chemicals in our water and should we do anything about it? So I got a hold of the letter, looked up the chemicals, and immediately started to contact people to try and find the data to see exactly how much of the stuff we had been drinking. And uh, one of my first contacts was with Councillor Babinski, who was the Ward 1 Councillor and the Chair of the Natural Resources Committee at the time. She put me in touch with BAPAC, which is the Barnes Aquifer Protection Advisory Committee, no longer together, and the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. I had a question for you. What is PFAS? Well, (laughs) PFAS is a very large family. PFAS stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It is a very large family of chemical compounds that according to the 2021 European definition now includes about 6.3 million distinct chemicals. They are man-made. They are persistent in the environment, which means they don't break down in the sun. They bioaccumulate in our food chain, and um, they're very, very toxic. I I would also just like to say, Kristen, you are a trained chemist, so you do understand quite a bit about the ways that these chemicals can affect our bodies and travel through the environment, correct? Right. Well, I mean, I and in 2016, when I first found out about them, I did not know anything at all. But I started to go to conferences where the people who did were presenting. It was a very steep learning curve, and we're all still on it. There are people that study the fate and transport of these chemicals only. There are people that study the toxicity of these chemicals. There are people who study just the history of these chemicals. They're used in everything. They, you know, helped contain the atom bomb. 
they're used in the N95 mask that helps me stay healthy. So yeah, I do have a background in chemistry and mm. the background on PFAS is staggering and we're all still trying to wrap around. Kirsten, I had a question about the, the scientific evidence that we have today about PFAS. Um, how dangerous is it um, maybe to a developing child and, and to human beings as well? The EPA last year just lowered the amount of their interim health advisory to be more than 10,000 times lower than the originally 70 parts per trillion they came out with first. So right now for PFOS, they're saying it's 20 parts per quadrillion. And for PFOA, it's four parts per quadrillion. Is... And so it's infinitely small. These are carcinogens, so there is no safe level. Mm -hmm. There's no safe amount of PFAS. And there are some PFAS that are medications that we, we use and we take. There are some PFAS that work in our aerospace program and we couldn't, you know, do the things we do without them. There are some that are essential, but there are many that are not. And because of the way they are shaped, because the carbon fluorine bond is the strongest bond that we know of, we can't break them down. Our bodies can't break them down and our bodies just sort of move them from one place to another. They build up in our blood and in our organs. You know, they affect our immune system, they affect our liver, kidneys, they affect our lungs, they make COVID outcomes worse. You know, we're still just at the tip of the iceberg of finding effects. And, and what do we understand about where they came from in this specific instance in Westfield at the Barnes Air National Guard base? Marianne, you want to tell the story? Thank you, Kristen, giving you the present information that we know the most about it that we didn't know back in 2016 when uh, the city, uh, I was on the city council at that time, we became aware of the fact that something had to be done and directions were given at City Hall. Obviously we met and we were, they were gonna do a release and notify the public about what had happened and what this was. So it was the firefighting foam. It, I guess it was sometime around nine, in the 1950s Air National Guard was using doing practice drills, putting out fires with the firefighting foam. I think it was from 1950 to about 1987. And the drinking water, I guess, did test for PFAS when they started doing testing in 2013. But it wasn't until 2016 that the city was alerted by the EPA that they had to do something to notify the public. So uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff that went on at the city level and conversations that took place about what we needed to do going forward. And having residents being the ward one counselor, and I had been a resident that lived in either one or the other precinct that was most impacted by the contamination of our wells up here on the north side, wells seven and eight and wells one and two. So. Ward 6 is where the airport sits. So we were down at City Hall listening to presentations or the information that the DPU had and uh, also the mayor and whoever else was going to be involved in this. So they had to make a decision about what was going to happen and put, to produce some documentation of a flyer to send out information from the, the DPW to the residents in the city that were on public wells. Kristen, of course, was one of the residents that got that letter in the mail, and she contacted me. And at that time, I was also working with BAPAC, Barnes Act for Protection Advisory Commission, that met for uh, Holyoke, uh, Southampton, East Hampton, and Westfield were represented in that committee. And so she would go with me. I would 
invited her to come with me to those meetings too when that's this all started yeah and when you say dep you mean the massachusetts I, department of environmental protection and when you see dpw you mean the department of public works in westfield just to be clear yes correct okay. dep was also working with and attending some of the baypack meetings too because of the concern with them at that time was not with the public wells the what uh, customers that were served by the dpw for their water, but those who are on private wells, which were up here on the north side too. Okay, before we take a break, I had a question for you. Did PFAS contaminate the surrounding areas or is it, as you said, Kristen, before, is it just everywhere and so it's being contaminated into the water? I'm just wanting you to make that connection between the base and the water supply. So that that's actually a, a great question. And if you ask the Department of Defense, they'll tell you that's what the remedial, the remedial investigation is for, right? To make that connection clear. Wells seven and eight are on the other side of the fence of, from the base, right? They are, they are at the end of a runway, less than half a mile as the crow flies hmm. from where every summer since the 1950s, they would every couple weeks drag out hundreds of gallons of waste oils until the 70s and then they only <clears throat> did fuel and they would dump it on the carcass light it on fire wait until it got a really big fire and before it burned all the oils out they would put it out with their firefighting foam and then let everything sink into the ground less than half a mile away from our largest producing municipal wells Ooh. The foresight there. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, my God. And the thing about it is, is that they, they knew that the oils and, and, and the other waste contaminants and the metals and the TCEs and everything that had been in their waste stream that they were dumping, they knew that that had, you know, a likelihood of contaminating those wells because the direction of groundwater flow is directly toward the wells. So this was not utterly surprising to anybody and except the residents who didn't know. When we come back from this break, I think I'd like to ask you about where we stand now and what the next steps are. So you have been listening to Panorama. And we were talking with Kristen Mello and Marion Babinski from Westfield about contamination issues and being environmental activists in the city. They've been working to address the PFAS contamination crisis in Westfield around the Air National Guard base for quite some time now. So, um, Marianne, I wanted to ask you, since you first learned about this issue when you were a city councilor in 2016, what has happened since? It seems like we're just now beginning a study of how to remediate this problem. Why has it taken so long? Obviously, I, I could go back to many different discussions that, that you can have about this, not only about PFAS, but what happens when we get a company that produces something that then is allowed to be used. And then people are told that it's safe. This is a major global problem now. We know when this first happened, of course, everybody was confused and upset about how long this took. They were using this foam and doing what they thought was a good thing. And at the same time, not realizing that it was slowly contaminating not only our water, our wells up there, but also the people that were drinking the water thinking that it was safe. So they looked for answers. They wanted answers to their questions. And, and there was all kinds of uh, conversations going on and reasons given and explanations given about whether this was safe to be drinking or how bad was it 
the health issues that people were having at the particular point in time, all of a sudden they're attributing to the water and the contamination that was in the water. So it was a process to go through a whole learning process. There were many experts that were brought in in conversations. I went even to programs that were given at UMass on the subject. Every minute or every hour was devoted to this topic because it was now a very broad uh, piece of contamination that was not just happening in Westfield, but was right. happening across the country and globally. So, so it was a scary thing for people to have to, to to deal with. And they wanted answers. They wanted a solution. They wanted city to do something. So there were people coming at this from all different directions. There was a public hearing that was held at City Hall where they were invited in to give their input and tell what they thought at that time. And so it was a learning experience for everybody at that particular point in time. And everybody, some of them felt that they were caught off guard. Some other communities were had already started to be dealing with this. And Kristen can tell you about that because she was in contact with a lot of people in New Hampshire and around Portsmouth uh, where they had had the same experience because of the firefighting foam that was used there. So it was mm -hmm. a very confusing time, I should say, and it was very hard and difficult for people to try to wrap their head around what had actually happened and how serious this was. And uh, right. I don't know where this is gonna take us at this point. As I'm mm -hmm. one of those people that had been drinking this water for years too. Yeah, so bo both you and Kristen have been drinking the water for a long time. And um, I, I think yes. I'll pass the next question to Kristen. What have people affected by this had to do in the meantime? If you also want to add how your personal health has been affected too. My health was uh, most dramatically affected before I knew that there was anything in the water. Ten years ago, I had a life-saving lung surgery because I had this pneumonia that I couldn't beat no matter what medication I took and um, it created a hole in my lung and this mass that was threatening my life and I didn't know at the time they gave me pneumonia vaccines and my body didn't respond to them. Up until 2019 I had several weeks long pneumonia illnesses over and over and over again. In the summer of 2018, I stopped drinking the water. I started only purchasing my water and only reverse osmosis filtered water. And that's when my illnesses stopped. And, you know, there was no study on me about that. But what I know is that I will not drink anything other than RO water again, if I can possibly help it. Mm -hmm. I know that I have to be very, very careful because of COVID, because I know that, you know, my immune system is in danger and I only have one and a half lungs on my best day. So I am constantly in a mask if I leave my house. If I go downstairs, because the children I live with go to school, I put a mask on. You know, this whole public health situation has sort of intensified everything because PFAS makes it worse, but it also makes it more dangerous for us. Uh, I would also say that in 2013, that's when it was discovered here. Mass DEP, the DOD, the EPA, they all knew, but the residents didn't know. We weren't given any kind of informed consent about what we were drinking. And it wasn't until the EPA said in 2016, you need to turn these wells off because we're gonna come out with these new numbers when seven and eight were taken down. And then in September of 2016, there was a calculation that threatened taking well two, which is on Union Street offline. And that was the notice that alerted me in September of 2016. So they knew in 2013. And of course, the DOD and foam manufacturers knew of the toxicity of these chemicals before I was born. Wow. 
And what has the DOD's response been like since? They, they announced this new investigation, and it seems that they are going to be trying to determine whether they are the sole source of PFAS from the firefighting foam from the Air National Guard base. Uh, what have your interactions with the Department of Defense been like? Uh, <laughs> slow, at times very frustrating, and at times workable. You know, my father worked at Barnes. He retired a lieutenant colonel from the 104th. So the base is somewhere we used to go to work with him and hang out. And my relationship with the base is, you know, historic and personal for me. So to find out that, you know, when you ask a question, you can't get an answer or that information comes from the top down and, you know, the the people that, you know, you've known your whole life are now limited in what they're allowed to say or, you know, it's a, it's a struggle to get things done or you send in a letter and one base commander says, okay, we're willing to meet with you and then they swap out the base commander. It, mm. It's it's frustrating and it's a little bit of whack-a-mole, but in the last couple of years, PFAS community members from around the country have been meeting with Department of Defense officials, particularly Richard Kidd. And the more we meet with him and his staff and people like Nancy Balkis from the Air Force, the more we get our complaints and, and our frustrations heard, the easier it is to get the information we need to help get the resources we need here in Westfield. The the quantity of PFAS in, in the base that you were referring to, you said it was in almost everything that we have today, but there's a large concentration on this base. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, you do. And the thing is, the water under the base is very, very broad and deep. So just because that might not be the highest water concentration you might see for a base doesn't mean that less foam went down into it. It's just a, in going into a bigger pool in the sand underneath your feet. When you have PFAS contamination in a human body, ingestion is one of the strongest ways that you can get it there, right? Through eating fish, drinking water, breast milk. You know, these are the ways we get tons of PFAS in us. The PFAS up at the base, the fingerprint of the PFAS, the ratios of the PFAS that when our blood was tested by the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, that's ATSDR, they're part of the CDC and a sister agency to the EPA. When they came to test our blood, the ratios they found of the PFAS in our blood related with the ratios of PFAS in the water, and they were able to correlate our blood levels to the water such that if you looked at someone's blood levels, you could determine how long they had lived in the city. Wow. Wow. You've been listening to Panorama. We are speaking with Kristen Mello and Marianne Babinski, both founding members of Westfield Residents Advocating for Themselves. We're talking about PFAS by the Air National Guard base. And um, Marianne had something else to say about the way that the PFAS issue has been addressed on the Air National Guard base. Marianne? This has come a long way. We know that initially there was very confusing time in this city, and it was in, in some other cities too, is that the uh, city did try to do something, they took those wells offline, and the conversation then moved to what they were going to do about protecting the people who, had, who were exposed to this contamination, who in that particular time lived mostly on the north side, and I was getting a lot of calls from people who were very concerned and wanted something done right away. And the health issue was the other piece of it. Kristen and, and Raf fighting, and I was participating in that and agreed that 
people should have a right to have their blood tested to see what their load was because there was a lot of information flying from all different directions that were taking about taking people aback and they didn't know what to do and how to get solutions to the problems so the wells though uh, we had a bond that we were trying to push through to get those wells treated so that it could be come back online because we ended up with four of the wells on the north side being shut down so that created an issue but at the same time, some of us were trying to find out information from anybody who had it across the country. There was uh, Michigan. We, we talk about how much was in our water, but I know that there was a professor from Brown University who was hired to work with the state of Michigan because they had an issue, a very strong issue. There were private wells out there that had 58,000 parts per trillion of contamination from PFAS we had a whole range of different levels of contamination that were not just in Westfield, but in other areas and other communities across the country. So everybody was trying to step up and figure out what was going on. And as I took very much to heart a comment that Dr. David Savage, who was the professor, said, is for people not to go and panic, to take it to either extreme, to, to not ignore it and think it poo-poo it and not listen to the science, and not run like the sky is falling because it was not going to do anybody any good. We had to try to come together and work out solutions and do the best we can with the information we had at that time. And we have accumulated a lot of information over time to this day. So we have a lot more that we know about it, but people still need to be educated about it. You probably could believe that even people in Westfield, for as much as this has gone on, still don't get what's going on and what is happening and what happened and what are the problems with the water. So it's okay. going to be a strong, still a long education process. Uh, we have to do more to educate people and answer their concerns about what's in the water and how it has impacted them and, and also for the people that are on private wells. Right. DEP came to yeah. town and they were testing the private wells, getting people. I helped them call people, knock on doors of people who had private wells, encourage them to get their wells tested, that they wouldn't have to pay for it, mm -hmm. that they, if they tested too high over the limit, then, then the Mass DEP would provide them with whole house filtration systems. Right. So people were trying to do the best they could with the information they had at that point. You created the Westfield residents advocating for themselves. How'd that come about? Like, did you just get in a room one day and say, we need to create an organization and, and let's fight this? Yeah, it was my living room. It was literally, it was literally my living room. Some knew me and had been asking me about the water. And one we met at the Baypack meeting that we had gone to. And they, they were just people that were like, we have to do something. We have to do something. What are we going to do? And, and people were looking to me and Marianne and like, well, we're going to have to form a group. And then uh, my brother came up with the name because he's kind of witty. And they, when you, you know, when you use the acronym, it's RAFT. And if you have a water problem, right, what do you mm -hmm. need? If we decided to start speaking as one group in one voice to see if we couldn't, you know, get a little momentum with our local and state and federal legislators to try and get some resources moving because they weren't moving. There were no resources were moving. Nobody from public health was involved. There were, DEP was testing, DEP was sharing data. That was terrific. And, you know, we love them for that. 
but resources weren't coming to bear yet. And so we needed to raise a little noise. And, and why was it? Why do you think they didn't react to you being like, hey, this is happening to us. Do something. Everyone was worried about getting sued in the beginning. Everyone I spoke with in the beginning was, have you filed a lawsuit? Have you filed a lawsuit? It, every, it was the initial reaction, no matter who I called. Well, I think also is in the first few years, the city of Westfield, of course, has lawsuits against the manufacturers of the product and everything, what other communities were doing too. So it's a delicate situation at that time because you do not want to jeopardize your position and with the law department and the people that they were working with, I think some people were overly cautious because you know you don't want to ruin your chances if you're going to pursue or try to get compensated for what happened because of this product that was used. I think that there was a lot of caution because there wasn't enough information. The Board of Health is only responsible for private wells. The city, DPW, had the responsibility of the public distribution of water. So there's no simple solution or even suggestions that can be made at this point of what we went through at the beginning. But we are thankful that pushing, having residents and RAF make sure that they kept this conversation going. And at the state level, of course, there were organizations like Toxics Action Center and Clean Water Action that were working with the state agencies too to get them to move and do something about this. How hard is it to educate residents, given that this topic is involved science and chemistry, and that's not necessarily the public uh, forte, let's say? I used to teach science, so it's, that's actually not the not hard part. Not the hard part. part. But are residents oh, no. understanding, or is this overwhelming for them, or do they get it when you when you explain it to them? Well, you know, you start with an apology, right? It's going to sound like I'm ringing a bell over your head for a little while, and I'm and I'm sorry about that, right? And, and it's probably going to scare the crap out of you, and I'm sorry about that too. I start with a picture of what octane looks like, right? It's you know little eight carbon chain with a bunch of hydrogens off it. You put it in your car. Everybody's comfortable with the word octane and the idea that it's a hydrocarbon, right? We've heard those words. So if I take, you know, on the end of that octane and I put a carboxylic acid group on the end, which is just a couple oxygens, it's nothing scary. It changes one little thing, but all of a sudden it's, a, it's an essential fatty acid instead of being octane for your car. Well, then if you take that and you change all those H's to fluorine atoms, that's PFOA. And your body might try to use it like the essential fatty acid it looks like in mimics. And so it gets into a lot of places where essential fatty acids are used and they're used for cellular metabolism. And that's how it gets everywhere. And that's how I explain it. That was a great explanation, Kristen. Thank you for that. When You're we... welcome. It's a, it's a compilation of a lot of other brilliant minds. It's not just me. <laughs> Um, and when we come back from the break, I think I'd like to talk a bit more about what Westfield residents advocating for themselves or raft has been doing around the potential expansion of the airport. And we spent most of the show so far talking about PFAS contamination from the Barnes Air National Guard base. But there's another project happening at that exact same airport that is of concern to your group, and that is the proposed expansion of the airport. So, Marianne, would you characterize that issue right now just very briefly for us? Well, there are two things that are going on that I know of. One of them was on the noise mitigation because they we have to go through this several times. We've done it already. 
uh, where they draw contour lines about the noise that comes from basically the jets that are from the Air National Guard that are here at Barnes Airport. And that is just because if we get qualified to do it, if we go through this process, then the Barnes can be in line to get grant money or some monies from the federal government, the DOD, to be able to compensate homeowners who are going to be adversely impacted by the excess noise. The other thing that was going on was the airport runways, the expansion, the, the upkeep, the, the repair that's being done for taxiways uh, off of the airport, enlarging them or sh uh, shortening them. Some of the neighborhoods around here are going to be impacted by that. You know, they don't like trees if there are planes trying to fly in, so some of it might involve clearing trees down. So that's that's a whole nother issue. I've made comments on that too. We uh, have comments that have been handed on. It's called an SEIR. The airport had to do a single environmental impact report with MEPA, the Mass Environmental Protection uh, Act group, to go through with that project. And there's one environmental justice community that is going to be impacted by that. And that's one I've been interested in specifically because of how I've been fighting for the environmental justice populations up in our area for years. Would you tell us briefly what an environmental justice population is? Well, the environmental justice population is decided in, in Massachusetts. There's been an executive order that started out first in around 2014. It was signed by Deval Patrick. Uh, to improve uh, and update the environmental justice policy. Environmental justice community is a community that is based on community of color or income or um, English speaking language, whether they can speak English or not understand English or that they are usually those areas, populations across the state are the ones that are impacted mostly by development and their health is put at risk. They're not usually even involved in the discussion. There's many of those going on right now, today even, in the eastern part of the state. So environmental justice communities have a right to be invited to participate in discussions and have their concerns. Yeah, and Kristen was telling me recently that the mobile home community of Heritage Park and a Section 8 housing development called Colonial Pine Acres are going to be among the residential areas affected. But Kristen, I think you also found that one or both of these communities were kind of carved out of being part of an environmental justice community recently. Um, would you tell me about that? Right. The um, So when the 2020 census data was released uh, this past fall, it updated the environmental justice maps. And because the income is only available at the block group level, um, and in Westfield, this particular section of town is so uh, sparsely populated, a block group contains almost a quarter of the city, a very large section of the city. And in those, some of those places, there are some new uh, developments in a more, you know, affluent neighborhoods. And what happened was that the medium income of the entire block group was uh, affected such that these neighborhoods fell out of their EJ designation. Right. And so we have been in contact with the state and uh, the environmental justice offices at the state 
to find out uh, what can be done about it. And there are some really good talks about some data driven methods that the state can use to reclassify these neighborhoods that have been historically disproportionately affected by development and pollution and, and kept marginalized either, you know, physically by highways or, you know, th through asthma and air and, you know, the ability to play outside with real grass. Like it, these communities have been hard hit and they don't need to continue to be hard hit. So uh, I applaud the state for trying to find solutions and Westfield is not the only community this has happened to. Absolutely. So a good data driven solution will help a lot of people. And this ties right back into the work that you're doing with Raft. So we have these communities that have been historically disenfranchised and left out of the process when planning for large developments such as the airport or highways. How do you work to bring these people to the table through your organization and I know, just building environmental movements in general? Um, we can go back to Mary. You can start and then Kristen can finish if you'd like. Well, I, I'm just saying that those... Um, communities, those populations here on the north side that Kristen just mentioned, which were the uh, Heritage Park and Arbors, which is the closest uh, mobile home park to the airport, including a Pine Acres. I mean, it's not just this fight over the PFAS or the airport building. When Westfield Concerned Citizens, I was a director of Westfield Concerned Citizens when the gas ride power plant was coming in, all of those communities were going to be impacted by that uh, gas-fired power plant that was going to be built within close proximity, especially to heritage, is practically in their backyard. Mm -hmm. And reaching out to those communities, of course, they were left out of uh, a lot of the conversations. So it was knocking on doors, going to them, getting them involved. They became uh, members of Westfield Concerned Citizens because they were residents of Westfield. And this was something that was going to impact their um, quality of life. And it was then that West Westfield Concerned Citizens and our group became involved with several state organizations, grassroots organizations, to work on getting the uh, executive order signed. And that policy then set in motion the upgrading of the environmental justice policy and then appointing an environmental justice director who fell under the EEA, the Secretary of Environment and Energy. Um, and uh, the next step after the policy, of course, was trying to get the uh, EJ codified into law, which just happened in the beginning of 2021. So they have been ignored for a long time, not just locally, but at the state level too, and then really have a strong enough voice. So trying to get them organized can, take a lot of extra work uh, and getting them educated and a seat at the table and a voice that gets heard. It mm -hmm. takes, a, takes a lot of time and, it's, and we're still working on it now. So if somebody's listening and wants to get involved with the re uh, Westfield residents advocating for themselves, where do they go? Do they find you on Facebook? Is it our website? Yeah, you can find us on Facebook. You can send an email to um, me, I'm at klm.wraft at gmail.com or wraft01085 at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. 
I guess as a as a final question to I'll turn it to Kristen. Um, understanding that you don't speak for um, the entirety of the Westfield City Council, what would you like to say to constituents of yours who are worried about contamination, want to see more action, or um, who would also like to um, maybe get involved in these public hearings or these um, public meetings? I would say reach out. There's a lot of reason to hide. There's a lot of reason to keep quiet. People, people who speak at public participation sometimes get treated very poorly but reach out if it if it if you have that feeling inside of your chest that says something needs to be done reach out speak out step out let's take care of it it's we are the grown-ups in the room that have to do something about it we can't wait for somebody else now is the time reach out let's get it done if you don't mind my just adding here because after being involved with the local residents and getting them involved through something like raft or westville concerned citizens and there are ever many many groups in neighboring communities too as concentrating at this point because i have never been satisfied and i think they're trying to do more but at the local level and the state level especially is to do better outreach when the ej was codified into law, part of that gave instructions to state agencies like the DEP and MEPA that they had, when they were approached by an applicant, even before the applicant applied to MEPA or DEP, for example, a state agency, that they had to do outreach to EJ communities. So doing that, trying to connect with these groups is not always successful. And I think what they're doing now is not even enough. They, as Kristen knows this too, it's, it's almost like you have to educate them of how to do the outreach. And locally, I think they need to get local elected officials and boards and commissions involved in taking an interest in caring about their own EJ populations too, and uh, doing a better job of getting the word out, having public hearings, not rushing through them, doing the minimal to get people a chance, give people a chance to speak their piece. You could do a whole nother show on that. I mean, I can give you an examples about what people have gone through that were organized, that were trying to speak and have their voices heard to protect their own health and well-being. Uh, and what we went through. It's uh, so I'm saying before that how long these kinds of conversations can take place. But we need them to do a better job at doing their outreach and inviting people to the table, taking it seriously. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Yeah. And in your roles as activists in the area and connecting with people well beyond Westfield, um, that's very important and an essential step. You have been listening to Panorama. I'm Sarah Robertson, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Torres. We've been speaking with Marianne Babinski and Kristen Mello from Westfield, who have been working tirelessly on the issue of PFAS contamination from the Barnes Air National Guard base and a whole slew of other environmental issues that you can get involved with, too, if you reach out to Westfield residents advocating for themselves. You can catch Panorama every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. at 101.5 WHMP 
or on the AM stations 1400. We're always looking for new guests to have on the show. So if you have an idea for someone you would like to hear us have a conversation with, you can email me at srobertson at whmp.com. Or if you'd just like to give us any feedback on the show, you can find all of our podcasts on whmp.com slash podcasts and some other great content like Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg's daily show, Talk the Talk, or the Western Mass Business Show and Financial Fitness. You can find all this at whmp.com. All of our episodes are available on demand every day, all the time, whenever you want them. Thanks for listening. <laughs>